0: From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast Toric IOL Rotation and Rerotation at AAO 2019.
1: If it does, I spend time you know, to make sure that all the viscoelastic is out from behind the lens and in front of the lens, and then you can try and push the optic more posteriorly.
0: I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2019 annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in San Francisco. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on iWorld's YouTube channel at iWorldTV.com. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Nicole Fram and from John Burdahl on Toric IOLs and Astigmatic Refractive Surprise. iWorld was testing out a new microphone system during Dr. Burdahl's interview. The test was not a success, and the sound quality is not up to our usual standard. However, Dr. Burdahl's content is so valuable that I didn't want to exclude it. I'm here with Nicole Fram. Nicole, we're going to be talking about uh, torque lenses and indications and, and all the whole sort of context. Um, but I, I, I'd like to sort of bias this conversation to people who are not yet doing a lot of torque lenses, maybe even people who haven't started doing torque lenses or aren't doing premium lenses generally. What are some of the considerations that you have in the evaluation of a patient for toric lenses. How do you know that you're picking the right candidate and the right lens?
1: Excellent. So I think the biggest hurdle when you start out with toric lenses is how do I get my measurements proper? What do I do intraoperatively and how do I fix them after? So the first step is making sure you have a pristine cornea. And so doing corneal topography, and I like to have at least three measurements of the cornea. So topography, tomography, and biometry. And then looking at They're ARs, so their autorefractions will give you a K in there, and looking to see if all these things kind of line up within 10 degrees of axis and within about a quarter of a diopter in terms of power. So once you have all of those measurements together, after that you can say, okay, this may be a good candidate for TORIC. And what we've learned is averaging these Ks, so Graham Barrett now has average Ks in his um, calculators, the average Ks will get us better results than just looking at one machine and one K. For that patient. Now, whether the patient has with the rule astigmatism, oblique astigmatism, or against the rule astigmatism matters, because we know there's a posterior corneal contribution that acts like a minus lens and gives you an against the rule component. So with with the rule, if you overcorrect, you're going to flip that axis to against the rule, and that doesn't really help you in terms of reading and things like that. Typically, people will aim about a minus 0.25, you know, for their astigmatism refractive outcome with the rule. Against the rule, however, I may treat earlier like at you know, 0.75 diopters because that patient actually has more against the rule component, especially as they age and I want to leave them maybe just a to touch with the rule. So those are the things that you're thinking about. Now, fortunately, these calculators now that are available for every lens platform will take into consideration the posterior corneal contribution. And so although it's an average and the more astigmatism you have, the more posterior corneal contribution there is. On average, it definitely helps us hit our targets better.
0: So you, you, there's so much that you packed in. To to that what 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 you just said, I know it took you a very short time to to, to say it all. But there, there's a lot that we need to to deconstruct from from this. First of all, just one uh, point of clarification that, that I that I want to make. So uh, G- Graham Barrett's calculator is uh, really helpful, there is, a, it doesn't, I don't think it immediately goes to the, the multi-K page, but that's, a, that's an option right. that, that, you've, that you've gotta check. These averages are not averages that you can do on a calculator because they're vector averages. Right. But the other thing that is really, really helpful for, uh, and I'm gonna sound like, like Warren Hill with this, is, is that it can show you whether there's instrument failure. Right. Whether one of the instruments that is measuring keratometry is, is producing just crappy data. Right. And then you can just, by checking or not checking one of the little boxes on the bad calculator, you can exclude that measurement and just use the ones that are, are, are consistent. That's
1: exactly. So that's the garbage in, garbage out. So looking at that reliability, understanding that you have a cornea that's pristine without epiphil basement membrane dystrophy or Salzman's nodules or bad dry eye, all these things, you know, looking at the placebo images um, prior to even getting these. Other testing modalities is really important. Now, I,
0: I, let, let me clarify something that we are consciously skipping—that is important. We acknowledge it's important, but we're not going to talk about it. Which is optimizing the ocular surface before right. the biometry. Just that's an important thing. We're not forgetting that. Um, so, uh, uh, here's what, what 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 I what I want to uh, uh, ask. Um, we, we've done our measurements and we have, well, let, let me back up. You mentioned posterior corneal curvature. I think that I represent probably most of the people uh, watching this video. First of all, by watching it, they're expressing that they're interested in education, so they've probably heard about the contribution of the, the, the posterior cornea and the cochnomogram and the modifications to it, yada, yada, yada but I also represent most of the people watching in that I have no objective means of measuring the posterior cornea in my practice. I do a topography on every single patient, whether they're getting a toric lens, or the, every single cataract, pre patient. They're getting a toric lens or not a toric lens, because I want to know what's, what's going on. I then abdicate the, my involvement in the contribution of the posterior cornea to these calculators. Uh, is that not an unreasonable thing to do?
1: I don't think it's unreasonable. Now, Doug Koch taught us a lot about the contribution. There are certain machines that will directly measure, like Pentacam or Galilei, or even there's an OCT um, formula um, that's out there, but they haven't been validated as better than another. And so it's very hard to use that data as of yet. We're still looking, Um, you know, the IOL Master 700 has a total K measurement, which takes into consideration posterior cornea, but we're validating that as well. So it's going to take some time to see if we have a direct measurement that can directly correlate into our formulas and give us a better outcome. One of the things that we do have is intraoperative aberrometry, which doesn't rely on Ks. It relies on the light rays coming in and how they bounce out, and it gives you an aphagic refraction. So by definition, if all the factors are pristine while you're operating, you will get a total kind of corneal power from that um, as it relates to the formula that it's being plugged into, and you'll be able to get a better assessment of that posterior cornea contribution indirectly.
0: So that's a great segue because I wanted to move from uh, our position of uh, being sort of all-knowing before surgery with all of the data that we have. Of course, we're not all-knowing, but whatever. Uh, and then going into surgery and using these measurements in the context of a patient who, for example, is now lying down. Um, I want to know what I can do to optimize things without intraoperative aberometry, with intraoperative aberometry, and within the category of intraoperative aberometry. How important really is the, the pseudophagic measurement? Can I just do the aphagic measurement and
1: get enough data from that? So I think these are great questions. So the, the first thing is that you, you don't have to have intraoperative um, digital marking systems or intraoperative measurements to do toric lenses. You can use your calculators. You sit the patient in an upright position. You mark them preferably at a slit lamp. Um, and you mark them at the 90 and 180 degree, and you use that as a reference mark for when they lay down. And when they lay down, they're going to get some cyclotorsion, but at least you accounted for that. Um, If you do have the benefit of having a Callisto, uh, which is digital marking, or interoperative aberrometry, then you can use those things um, to help you surgically, but sometimes those things will fail. Right, So, the internet goes down, or the machine isn't working, or you get an error message, or the eye is too dry and you can't use it. So, I wouldn't recommend relying on that entirely. Um, in terms of intraoperative aberrometry, the pseudophagic measurement matters the most. Um, so, that, I'm sorry, the aphagic measure matters the most. The pseudophagic is strictly for rotation. But if the cornea has too much hydration, or you're not happy with the case after that point, you follow your marks that you made from the beginning
0: yeah i think that, that, that that's uh that's a that's a wonderful point that's a wonderful point okay so i i have done my my surgery and uh i you know i've been compulsive with my my biometry and you know everything's lined up and just everything was was perfect and the patient has unexpected uh, residual astigmatism at a funny axis and I want to know w- how that happened and and why it's happening and, and what I can or should or shouldn't do about it.
1: Right, so this is where the big, I think the biggest hurdle is for people to start using uh, toric lenses because unless you know how to fix it, um, you, you don't know uh, if you want to join that club. Um, and so First of all, what we didn't mention is right at the end of the the surgery, when you have the toric placed where you want it to be, I use intracameral antibiotics and I'll kind of flush either BSS or intracameral antibiotics in to see if it's going to wiggle or rotate. And that's kind of my stress test. Um, So that's one thing. What if it does? If it does, I spend time, you know, to make sure that all the viscoelastic is out from behind the lens and in front of the lens. Um, and then you can try and move, push the optic more posteriorly. Now, in a very high myopic eye, you may have to... People have advocated putting a CTR yeah, in. it gets um, But, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that says that's better. Um, but depending on platform, you're going to see this. Um, so sometimes you want to offshoot it and then figure out which way it's trying to rotate. And it's usually... Um, you know, in the counterclockwise uh, fashion, and then try and kind of guesstimate it back into position. It's, it's difficult in the, in the long eyes. Um, but back to what do you do now? You have, you know, a five-degree... We're, a we're five too degree. Exposed, so We're one week. Yeah. Or we're so, you out. know, for every one degree, you lose, you know, 3.3% of the effect. So you can imagine, you know, if you're off 10 degrees, and a lot of people feel that 10 degrees is adequate, you're losing a lot of effect, particularly in the low toric ads. Um, so the first thing you want to do is dilate the pupil and check the position, right? And so... Um, how do you do that? I mean, I, so I, I know how I do that. Do I have a that? slit lamp, and there's actually a JCRS publication where you can print it out if it's not on your slit lamp that'll show you the axis mark that you can put on top of of um, where it swivels on the slit lamp. So you can use that. Another way you could do it is um, you can actually take a photograph and, you know, and and put the marks on the court in 360 uh, degrees and, and figure it out that way. So those are the ways that I do it. Um, there's also Access Assistant, which is an app um, that you can use to do that. So there's various ways. Um, once you've figured out that it's actually rotated, um, you have to take into consideration, did this patient have pseudoexfoliation? Is it more dangerous for me to go back in? Is it better if we just simply use a laser um, and do PRK to kind of get that patient in a position. Is that that patient okay with simply wearing glasses, which some patients are after surgery? Part of my consent to the patients is, I'm going to try and get as much of the astigmatism as I can, but I can't necessarily get all of it depending on the anatomy of the eye. Mitch Weikert and his group just came out with a paper on tilt, IOL tilt, and how IOL tilt contributes to that unexpected residual astigmatism after toric IOL placement. So all of these things are being factored in. But if it's simply that the IOL rotated, you want to wait at least a week. There is literature that supports that. Because if you do it within three days, sometimes it rotates right back. And you want to make sure the whole IOL is freely mobile. If the ends of the haptics are stuck in fibrosed in, because sometimes that happens even at three weeks out, um, it's just gonna rotate right back to that position. So you may have to be prepared to dissect it out, get all the viscoelastic out again, and then put it back into position.
0: What what, what do you, I, I, you know, fortunately I, I've never had that case where I've had to go in and reposition a lens twice. But is there anything special that you do after your re-rotation to assure yourself that it's not going to re-rotate again?
1: So there's some controversy on this. Uh, Some people like to keep the pressure a little bit low because they want the posterior capsule um, interacting with the posterior portion of the lens. So I don't ever like the pressure to be low because I don't want that pressure gradient. So I make the eye normal tensive. I make sure all the viscoelastic is out and then I will use a hydrogel sealant or make sure my incisions are Really sealed, so that when we're taking the lid speculum out, and when they're you know immediately right after, that we're not getting a pressure variation.
0: Yeah. So the, 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 this is, this is great stuff, and I know, I know that we've gotten sort of in in the weeds for our purported purpose of talking about getting into to toric lenses, but I think if anything, it should be comforting to. Viewers who are not yet doing torque lenses or doing very, very few torque lenses, although we're, we're talking about dealing with um, with going back into surgery, neither you nor I are particularly anxious ab- about this. I mean, it, it, it's this is something that's workable, it's infrequent, and it's usually not that hard to, to fix. I mean, the right. hardest part is Depending. deciding in, in your mind that, that you're going to do it and, right. and telling the patient. And well, then the, la- mine.
1: the last thing is I don't normally tell patients to not exercise after surgery or anything mm-hmm. like that. I just don't want a lot of sweat going in the eye and swimming and things like that. Um, but with my toric patients, I ask them not to do a lot of inversions or things like that. They need to take it easy for a week um, after the surgery. And I think that's been an important thing to help with rotations post-operatively.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. That's a nice pearl. Yeah. Uh, Nicole, I think I want to thank you. This is a, an, an, an important topic. This is really sort of br- bread, bread and butter for us here. Um, and, and you know, you, you're just, as always, so very generous with, with your time. You came and you sat with me. You talked about this. We've been for a while. You're a busy, you. busy person. You're here. I, I, anyway, I want to thank you. You've been very generous. This, I've enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'm here with my friend John Burda. John, I, I I am you know you I've known each other for a long time. Uh, it, it'll come as no shock when I tell you that I'm compulsive with all things, but uh, especially with biometry. I mean i um, um, you know the, the, the old adage is measure twice cut once that's like you know I'm measuring like an order of magnitude more than that. My grandma
2: would be proud. She always said measure twice cut once. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. So anyway, uh, w- however compulsive I, I am, I'm the next level up with torque lenses and torque lens uh, planning and placement and all of that, that stuff. And I am confident with my, uh, my surgical planning and, I, you know, I've had patients, uh, not a lot, but I've had patients for whom I'm telling you I will, I will swear on whatever you want that I did everything perfectly. And when I left that eye, the lens was in the right place. And they come in post-operatively, and there's residual cylinder. Sometimes the lens is still in the, in the right place, and there's some funky biometry, ELP lens tilting. Who the hell knows what's going on? Issue, although I have to fix it or not, and sometimes Despite my best efforts, the lens has rotated. So this is the clinical context in which you gave a a wonderful presentation.
2: Where where do we go from here? Yeah, so the first place we start is we can fix it. We can almost always fix it. And there's a number of different ways that we can fix it. So, So good job being compulsive both preoperatively and intraoperatively, and there's some things that are beyond your control. One is if the lens rotates. Maybe we can make sure we remove all the viscoelastic, tamp it down, allow the haptics to unfold, give us a little higher likelihood that the lens will stay in place, Um, but uh, sometimes it'll still rotate, and um, sometimes the prediction that we did on the front end isn't as good. Now down the road, there's some exciting things coming with light adjustable lens. We're using that in our practice now and that mitigates a really? lot of these fa- Yeah, yeah, it's great. Mitigating a lot of these factors, not widely available yet. But what do you do when those things happen? Okay, so if, um, so, so one example is using a stigmatism fix free website um, that's available to help you calculate if you can rotate the lens. And, and if you can rotate it and the spherical equivalent is good, And you'd be happy with that, and the reduction in astigmatism is adequate, then rotating a lens is a good option. If not, perhaps a laser enhancement, an AK, or an IOL exchange. But we can almost always fix it. And so I start there. And so don't beat yourself up too much. You know, it happens to all of us. A lot of data goes into astigmatism fix, you know every month from surgeons that are facing the same thing that has happened to you rarely, and your compulsion is decreasing the rate that it happens to you. Okay, so
0: I have a whole bunch of, of questions here. Uh, one question is, when do I pull the trigger? When, you know, when postoperatively, do I say, this is not getting better and I have to do something?
2: Yeah, um, if you clearly see a lens is rotated, it's not going to just rotate back to the position you wanted it to be at. So if it's at one week and it's clearly rotated, I'd go back in early and and add a week. And I have on my own patients, because it happens to me too, and rotate it back into position. Now, the question is, should you rotate it to the original planned position or do you use now the manifest refraction to to dictate that? And that's a little bit of a judgment call at one week because they may not be refractively stable. But if you get a really solid refraction... I'm looking to see if that's a little bit different than what the original planning said. But this is interesting. I
0: I've I've never been in that circumstance. Uh, I I mean it's when I've had to go back in the the recommendation has been within, you know, a, a hair's breadth of, of the the original planning. That's interesting that that uh, so how how do you how do you reconcile when they are
2: yeah. different? So yeah, good question. So if I know that it's the rotation issue, where you right in our planning, and so if it rotated, say, 30 degrees, go back in right away and change it. Um, but, but it's better to use the refraction, because this is how it works, you, you know, with the IOL rotation astigmatism fix. We take the refraction. We know what the toric lens is and where it's at, and from the refraction, we can subtract that out and figure out the idealized astigmatic state of the eye. And then we can back-calculate where would the lens be? So if you got a surprising surgically induced astigmatism, or the posterior corneal curvature was um, steeper than maybe we anticipated from Graham Barrett's great we're just, we're, formula, we're just using
0: averages. With Th- that's that.
2: right. So so then you can actually get the final common pathway we all care about, which is the refraction yeah. to back calculate where to put the lens. And so in general, that's what I do.
0: So uh, I-, I am not going to ask you. Uh, what can be done during the original surgery to minimize the likelihood, to, we think, minimize the likelihood of rotation of the lens. But what I am going to ask you is, if I have to go back in and rotate this lens, what can I do
2: to minimize the likelihood that it's going to re-rotate back? Good question. I'm going to not answer the question that you asked me. And I'm going to answer something different first, and then I'll come back to that. First thing is, Uh, You don't need to make a 6 o'clock mark when you come back. Okay, You've got a great mark where those dots are already. So the way to do that is to mark where the lens is currently and then how many degrees to rotate from there. Mm -hmm. And then you've got it solid on and you don't have to worry about misalignment. Then the question about what do you do to make sure it doesn't rotate again doesn't have a lot of great data about it. There's some data out there that suggests... Uh, in peer-reviewed literature that suggests putting in a CTR that helps. Ring, yeah. It's it's small, it's loose uh, data, but there is some data to suggest that. You could also do a reverse optic capture where you put the optic on top of the capsule and that'll lock it in. Um, and, and a lot of times just, just rotating it back to the right place, removing all the viscoelastic, yeah. the bag has started to shrink down a yeah. little bit so it's not Wide open. So most of the time, I don't think that you need to do anything other than make sure it's in the right place.
0: Do you do you put in caps tension rings in in this setting? I do not. Yeah. Okay. I've done yeah, both. I'm, I don't have any thoughts about it. So okay. So so that is one avenue uh, for 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 amelioration. Uh, what about these other choices? When how do you decide uh, that uh, laser vision correction is the best choice?
2: Uh, A couple of things. First, what's the spherical equivalent? Because if we're off on spherical equivalent, you can rotate that lens anywhere you want to, but you're not changing the spherical equivalent. So Mm -hmm. spherical equivalent has to be right. Second is, you know, did this lens happen to have weak zonules or is it aggressively fibrosing or something like that that would make me say I don't want to go back into the eye and then move towards laser vision correction? Um, Of course, if you're going to do laser vision correction, you have to have access to an eczema. So, do you have an eczema in your practice, or do you have a relationship with someone that would enhance a patient like this for you? If not, then you're looking at an IOL exchange, or or rotating or the toric, or um, or a pair of glasses.
0: Yeah, I mean, always always an option, right? Although, the patient has shelled out for a for a premium lens and, and and wants some ROI,
2: which is which is what we want to try and avoid because our original goal was trying to help them minimize their need for glasses.
0: Okay, so. W- there's there's an important, there's an elephant in the room here, right? So we've uh, made our assessment, we've come up with our plan, we know what we would like to do. How do we talk to the patient about
2: it? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing that uh, patients don't care what you know until they know that you care. So the first thing to do is demonstrate that you actually do care and actually care. Hey, we're going to be able to this. I'm sorry that there's a bump in the road. This does happen sometimes, but we can fix it. In our practice, we include the cost of fixing it in the upfront fee, so we're just talking to the patient about what we're going to do at no cost to them to help fix the situation that we're in. And I find that patients, although disappointed and usually say something like, Cal, this always happens to me, um, they're reasonable about it. And as long as they know that you're competent and that you care, We'll get them to a good spot, and it's really helpful that they don't have to pay an extra fee for it
0: right and i i've I've always found i mean again it hasn't happened a lot of it's grateful to say, but I've always found that i'm more anxious in anticipation of that conversation than the patient is about the conversation that's right because they know that the outcome isn't what they want, and they're happy to hear that that you want to do something about it
2: exactly right and so so Especially if you have the confidence that you know you can fix it, which you usually can. They uh, they connect with us on that confidence. They say, "Ah, Josh knows what he's doing. He'll get me where where I need to go." And yeah, this wasn't ideal, but it'll be okay.
0: Yeah. So that that's 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 great. And and, you know, we we could end the conversation here, and this would have been a a fulfilling experience for me, John. But let me let me just ask you this. So. and maybe you don't have a go-to answer for it, but uh, this has happened with the patient's first eye. You're going to put a torque lens in the in the second eye. Is there anything that you do to modify technique with the second eye if you've already had an experience about getting burned with the first?
2: You know, I really don't. Probably because I'm meticulous on the first eye about removing viscoelastic, making sure the
0: wait. There's nothing more. Yeah,
2: I, I don't know that. I don't know that. There's something more that I can. Other than maybe saying to the patient, hey, this happened in the first eye. There's probably a little higher likelihood that it that's, could happen I, that's, in the next. That's, that's what I do. It's never
0: happened with the second eye with yeah, me. I, but, haven't, yeah. I
2: haven't had that either. And interestingly, in, in the studies that we published that have come out of astigmatism fix, some of the things that are surprising. Like, we did not see a higher rotation rate in high myopes, even though we all I know, that's, that's, believe that's, that that's the, the yeah. case. But we didn't see that in the data. And it makes sense to me that it would, but we didn't see it. Yeah,
0: really, really, really interesting stuff. John, I'm so happy that, 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 you, that you, 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 you brought this to us. There, there are, I am told, and I mean that seriously, I am told that there are, uh, there's a, a large segment of the membership who we're still not putting into work lenses, right? And there are two big barriers to it. Well, there are three big barriers, right? One is, is that people get set in their ways and they want to change. Fine, what, whatever. Optimal is usually not like that. Uh, second one is, is that there are people who are not used to talking about out-of-pocket fees to the patient, but because there are so many things now that are becoming out-of-pocket, I think there are more patient, more, more people who are comfortable with it. But the third thing is is that no one wants to do anything in which they're going to have to deal with a, a, um, a post-operative management that can involve a second surgery, and it's just nice to, it's nice to have this conversation in which you don't appear anxious, because you know that this is a situation that, that you can handle, and it's, it's you know, the re rotations are not that difficult. And um, I think it's just good for people who are viewing this who are not yet doing toric lenses, um, you can handle this.
2: You know I, I, I totally agree, and I, I think your assessment is spot on behavior change uncomfortable talking about money, and unclear about an exit plan if we have an unhappy situation and and it's pretty easy with toric lenses to have an exit strategy that can fix the problems that may arise, even though they arise infrequently
0: yeah John, this is great uh, look I want to thank you as always for for uh, bringing in an interesting topic for making it very, very clear you're an uh, articulate and elegant guy so it's easy speaking with you. And uh, I want to thank you for being so very generous with your time with me today.
2: Thanks, Josh. And thanks for all you do for education for all of us. Thanks.
0: Nicole Fram comes to us from Los Angeles, California. John Burdahl comes from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Ask questions of Dr. Fram Dr. Burdall, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh@iworld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.